0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Treasury Department takes a step toward ensuring cyber risk and a thumbs up for innovation at CBP. It's Thursday, October 13th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Two contractors are asking the Court of Federal Claims to pause the Polaris contract again. SH Synergy and VCH Partners filed pre-award protests with the court Friday. The two companies argue the solicitation still has small business mentor-protege problems, among other issues. A request for information from the Internal Revenue Service asks industry for automation solutions for procurement. The new RFI says vendors should list technical capabilities and FedRAMP-certified commercial off-the-shelf automation solutions. The RFI lists cloud solutions as especially interesting to the IRS. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. Learn more at sfdc.co/psh. A request for information from the Treasury Department asks for input on whether the federal government should offer cyber insurance for catastrophic cyber events. The Government Accountability Office recommended that Treasury and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency look at the issue. Jim Richberg is Public Sector Field Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Information Security at Fortinet. He's former National Intelligence Manager for Cyber at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Jim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The words cyber insurance make some people really excited and make some people's the hair stand up on the backs of their necks. Why does this drive such a visceral reaction and how does it apply to what the Treasury Department is asking for here? Welcome.
1: So, you know, I have come, uh, I have basically come 180 degrees on the topic of cyber insurance. I remember when it got started, uh, it seemed like a gold rush. And, and just as in the gold rush, the only people, who were making money were the people who were supplying the commodities, not mining the gold. Cyber insurance was something that it didn't really indemnify you against much. There were so many ways to exclude it. And, and it felt that it was really a license to coin money hand over fist. That was that was last decade. The industry, and, and of course, we didn't have actuarial data. So you could almost argue they were setting premiums by throwing darts at a dartboard. We now have a lot of data, ransomware especially as it targets uh, business and state and local government, has become a real threat. It's risen. I talked to one insurer who said in 2019, 10% of their claims were ransomware. Last year, 90% of them were. If I am a small business, if I am local government, I should do basic cyber hygiene, the reality is many of them don't. So cyber insurance is part of their risk management strategy. The challenge is it can't be the centerpiece of the risk management challenge. You don't want them to be in a position of saying, I have cyber insurance. I can stop doing cyber hygiene. I can stop training my workforce. And that's different, though, Francis, than this current conversation, what the what Treasury is proposing, which is really paralleling what what they did in terrorism after 9-11 of saying for these black swan events things that are uninsurable by the private sector do we want to offer federally backed catastrophic cyber loss insurance to critical infrastructure providers and that's different than the run of the mill if you will cyber insurance for small and medium business for local governments
0: When you pointed me to this uh, request for information, I started to read through it, Jim. The thing that jumped out at me is this is a potential solution for the small companies that talk to Matthew Travis all the time at the Cyber AB about CMMC and how am I going to afford whatever the accreditation process is to be able to do business with the Pentagon. And I wonder if I'm thinking about that the right way. And I'm not saying it's necessarily the... Only solution or the right solution, but it strikes me this is one potential place that this could wind up impacting, in particular, the federal government agencies and the industrial base it sells to the government.
1: So I, I don't actually think it's going to fit. It's the solution to that problem. You talk to organizations where government actually wants them to make changes in their operating posture and to document it. They're not looking to have somebody insure the risk, they're looking to have you do bona fide risk reduction. Uh, Does that mean those companies shouldn't talk to a private insurer who will come in and say, Yep, not only have you had your assessment for CMMC compliance, but we're willing to say as long as you do this, we see the risk as X, so we'll insure you against something slipping through. But that's not going to, I don't think, be federally underwritten. Uh, The the, the proposal that's on the, the table for comment right now is really focused on the big boys, on the critical infrastructure providers. And, and I think the first thing that, that fundamentally it diverges from the terrorism is, yes, you could insure someone to rebuild World Trade Center towers. But if you have a cyber incident that takes out a major power utility or causes a dam to burst, rebuilding that, that physical infrastructure, that dam or that power plant is the least of, the, of the, the magnitude of loss that was suffered. What makes it critical infrastructure is its impact on other people. Rebuilding the dam and ignoring the torrent of water that rushed downstream and wiped out communities, that we're not ensuring that. So I, I think that it's it, this is not like the terrorism problem. To be true, sure, to be sure, there could be cyber terrorism, but I think the issue here really is saying I, I'm not trying to make everyone affected whole. And and, you know, the owner of the asset should have insurance. The other thing that that, you know, we talked about how cyber insurance has changed and how it has matured. Uh, I think something that relatively few people recognize, Francis, is that cyber threat intelligence companies have actually become sources of real time actionable threat intelligence. That's a hot topic for everybody right now. I know I'm the former national intelligence managers for cyber, cyber threat information is near and dear to my heart. Who better knows what is working Then the people who are getting claims, uh, they know what the threat activity is. They know how to mitigate that. And they got skin in the game. They don't want you to have to file a claim. They don't want to have to pay it out. So they have an incentive to have an ongoing dialogue with with their policyholders about here's what the threat landscape now looks like, here's ways you can mitigate the risk. The federal government already has programs and plenty of incentives to share cyber threat intelligence with the private sector with critical infrastructure. Adding a federally insured program for critical infrastructure isn't going to give them any more incentive to share. And it's actually going to, I think, disadvantage this emerging market and information that is really exciting to me. This is this is stuff that nobody else provides that has quite the same salience, quite the same real-time nature as the hey, here's what the claims over the last month are telling us is the new threat tactic, make your change.
0: Yeah, what's your sense of how that dialogue is running between the federal government and those those insurers, because you're right, that sounds like a treasure trove of data and information about the trajectory of the threat landscape.
1: Well, we've talked about a Bureau of National Cyber Statistics. It was in the Solarium uh, report. It's been put in, I think it may be in the National Defense Authorization Act. It's it, it having a place where that kind of actuarial data can come where others can use it, because yes, it's good if I'm insured by ACME, ACME policyholders get my sense of it, but I'd like to make that available more broadly. And that's not genuinely competitive information. I mean, that's the kind of thing that benefits all of us, that kind of due diligence and prudent, uh, and prudent defense. So whether the insurance companies share it as a consortium, but you'd like to let the federal government be able to react to that kind of information as well. Bureau of Cyber Statistics is a safe haven where you can put that data, where people can share it, where it's anonymized. But yet it tells you what you want to know about the bad guys and about what works in terms of of mitigation and prevention measures for defenders. So I think is a natural intersection. Um, and part of it would be this idea of let's actually nationalize the solution.
0: What would an effective dialogue between an organization like CISA or Cyber Command and those insurers that have that information that you talked about look like?
1: Well, I'm hoping that it's already occurring. You know, that I've been out of government Fair. long enough that I'm I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, you know whether it's CISA that has the uh, you know the this, the JCDC you know the idea that we want to get together and systemically look at how to how to harden infrastructure, how to make ourselves more cyber resilient. I don't think any of the insurers are in that because it's really focused on. Providers of the IT and cyber infrastructure, not these people who you go well, you know, they are they are unique providers, and are we talking to them? Uh, so I don't I don't really know because again, this was a revelation to me that was fairly recent to have to, to just have this conversation and to realize the the magnitude and the uh, actionable nature of what these guys were seeing. So I don't know that my my former colleagues in government would be you know any more likely to realize this left to their own devices. But I hope when someone points it out to them, maybe this podcast can help, that they'll reach out and start to build those bridges.
0: I note that the CEO of the Acme Insurance Company is an odd-looking fellow named E. Coyote. And so I hope to have him on the program to talk about this issue. Jim Richburg, it's great to have you. Thanks very much.
1: I always enjoy talking with you, Francis.
0: You can read more about the cyber insurance concept in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The innovation team at Customs and Border Protection has started 73 pilot projects to test new technologies. The Government Accountability Office says CBP has opportunities to push its performance results further. Marie Mack is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at GAO. Marie, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What did you look at regarding these 73 pilot projects in particular or CBP's innovation team in general? Welcome. Thanks
2: for having me. This is one of those GA reports that is definitely more of a good story where CBP CBP initiated this great effort of establishing this innovation team in 2018 with the intent of delivering new and innovative technologies and these technologies have the potential to significantly enhance operators' missions when they execute their missions. But like most GAO reviews, it needs to do a bit more to be really effective. And just a little bit of context on this innovation team or abbreviated what we call Invent, CBP Smartly has been leveraging existing relationships with entities such as the Defense Innovation Unit to make inroads to work directly with small businesses, non-traditional companies that have commercial technologies that could be readily available, pretty much with just some modifying and testing for use and cbp officials also indicated that the added benefit of government to government is that a lot of these upfront investments for these technologies were made by private industries rather than government itself so as you indicated as of this past july they've invested about 120 million in 73 projects testing cutting edge technologies such as communications and surveillance drones autonomous surveillance towers, and opioid detection capabilities. And it's pretty much at less than maybe a couple million a piece on average. So relatively small dollar amounts when you're talking from a federal government perspective to demo these technologies. So one of the main things we looked at is what one of the main findings we found was the innovation team didn't always ensure someone in CBP wanted this technology before you invest time and money to develop it. That seems a little bit of a waste of effort and their own guidance says they should identify an interested owner, a program office who wants the technology prior to investing in a pilot project. So one of our findings was that almost half of the completed projects, there were 19 of the completed projects were terminated. And about a third of those, nobody in CBP was willing to take on the technology. And interestingly enough, these were not instances where the technology perform, didn't perform well or was not operationally viable. Bottom line was they didn't have transition agreements formally established. So as you guess, uh, we made a recommendation that they should consistently document these agreements with officials that say they want the technologies before you start the work into investing time and money.
0: That was the one uh, finding that jumped out at me, Marie, because when I first read through the highlights page, I I didn't read it right, is is the bottom line. I read of the 39 completed projects, 19 didn't transition, and, and I'm a math nerd sometimes, that means 20 did transition. GAO found the most common reason was that pilot projects didn't transition, as you just described was uh, not finding a transition partner willing to invest further in the technology. I was thinking about it based on conversations I've had with DIU, you referenced them, in that I was thinking there wasn't a company that was willing to invest in the technology to scale it, and it took me a little bit of rethinking to get to what you're talking about, which strikes me as a bigger problem that there wasn't somebody inside CBP that was interested in actually developing the technology and using it.
2: Right. And absolutely. And what we did find was there were certain, there was usually when they started to kick things off, there was usually some CBP official that informally expressed interest in that particular technology. But what happened is maybe that official moved on to another office before the technologies were ready to go into a program and their successors did not share interest, did not share that interest. So, But if you establish some formal documentation process, formal agreement with CBP officials, then it likely would continue, you know, go through.
0: You lay out the steps in this work, Marie, uh, to GAO's key practices for creating a performance assessment system. Run me through those steps of those key practices and where you found that CBP might not be aligned with those key practices.
2: Sure. Sure. Invent the innovation team established strategic goals that basically are really important to focus on keeping pace with mission needs and being responsive to frontline operators, such as basically saying, Hey, we want these technologies to rapidly transition to long term owners. They had not established these performance goals that link to those higher order strategic goals. They had quantitative performance goals, like how many contracts actions we take or how many new technologies we have, but none of that was linked to how does that transition capabilities to the long-term owners, how does that put operators first by being focused on proven, you know, by providing these proven capabilities. So there was no linkage between what performance goals that they did have to the strategic goals. And that, obviously makes it very difficult to track progress. How does the invent um, know where, how much progress it's making to its strategic goals, or how do you identify certain performance goals where corrective actions may be needed? So here was an obvious typical GAO recommendation. We said develop performance goals that are derived from your strategic goals, including things like how long it should take to provide certain capabilities.
0: Uh, you're right. The innovation team hasn't measured progress against two of its three established performance goals. Is that a problem or just an observation, Marie?
2: It is a problem longer term because again, if you don't have performance goals that link to the strategic goals, the performance goals they have don't really link to the strategic goals. They're more such as numbers of what we've done and how much we've done and how how that is important or relevant. Didn't come through to us, so we basically are saying you need to focus more on developing performance goals that directly link to the strategic goal of getting the um, technologies out to frontline operators.
0: Uh, The recommendations here, Marie, seem to be pretty straightforward based on the issues that you've raised and 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 what you've suggested Uh, strengthening the innovation team's performance assessments updating its guidance for talking to those operator groups, the the frontline people who may or may not be interested in the technology that the innovation team is going to test, and documenting formal transition agreements. The transition agreements is the one that we didn't talk about and uh, to a great degree, and that sounds to me like that's more formalizing the process by which someone takes on A technology that the innovation team develops in that case that you mentioned a few moments ago where somebody expresses interest, but then they move to a different organization or move on and the new folks aren't as interested. It sounds like you just want to see those codified formally rather than kind of a handshake type agreement.
2: Absolutely correct. And I think the other benefit that I didn't get to mention yet is that when a prototype technology has been tested and proven out to be successful, and it goes into a program of record. So if you have that established transition in place, invent team, this in, innovation team can actually provide funds for up to two years so that program can continue to fund that contractor while the program itself works through funding for that new capability. And that really gets at avoiding that valley of death concept, that phase in early stages of innovation where technologies' continued development gets stuck because of lack of funding. So again, this is one of these things that I will say, I give a lot of credit to CBP leadership that they're pursuing creative approaches to provide frontline operators with cutting it edge technologies. They just got to do a little more work to improve its operations and make even greater contributions to its overall mission.
0: And it strikes me too, Marie, that this is potentially then a model for other organizations, not just inside DHS, but all across the government to use, in addition to what we're seeing in the Defense Department, to try to to set up an innovation operation to be able to bring these new technologies to whatever the mission is of that organization too. If they're on the right track, it sounds like they're close. And if they're on the right track and close to uh, a successful, you know, logistical, and infrastructure operation, then this is something that other organizations could follow.
2: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
0: All right, Marie Mack, great to talk to you as always. Thanks for your insight.
2: Thank you much.
0: You can find a link to Marie's work in today's show notes at the com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.